Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Thank you, Paul, for reading for us. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue to walk through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And this morning, we come to one of my favorite sections. I know all of the Bible is good. I understand that. But this is a particularly important and uh, one of my favorite sections of text. Um, To be honest with you, I've had to preach this section in one of the most uh, nerve-wracking places and conditions, and that is I preached this sermon in my biblical preaching class this past semester. You you prayed for this one because I was nervous. It got pushed off by a couple days. Good news is I got a 99 on it. I'm not guaranteeing the same results. I'm just simply saying, when I preached it on that day, I got a 99. Oh, you're so nice. Ephesians chapter 2 is such a beautiful section of text because it tells us exactly who we are before God. I've entitled this sermon, The Gracious Gift of Life. See, what I want us to understand as we read God's word is that the the life he gives us, eternal life, is really a gift of God. Now, I know we say it's a gift of God, but do do we really know it's a gift of God? That we didn't deserve a single ounce of it, and yet he gave it. I believe Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, points us to the very clear fact that any spiritual life we have is a gift of God. Never earned, only graciously given. Spurgeon said this, the very end and object of gospel preaching is to make men feel that they have no power of their own and to lay them as dead at the foot of God's throne. We seek under God to make them feel that all their strength must lie in the strong one who is mighty to save. What I want to do this morning for all of us is I want to lay us all as dead men and women before God, that we have nothing to bring, that we are in desperate need of his activity. And as a gospel preacher, brother, as gospel preachers, the best thing we can do is lay people dead at the foot of God's throne and pray that he would use his word to bring life in the midst of death. Listen, here's why this text matters. Because in this text, Paul is dealing with sin. And I believe I can... ...say definitively on the authority of God's word that every person in this room breathing air right now is a sinner. I don't care how good you've been. I don't care how many good deeds you've done this past week. We are all apart from God's work. We are all dead because we all have sin. We're all prone to inflate the view of ourselves and demote God. Our natural tendency is to make much of us and little of him, which, by the way, robs God of his glory. Apart from Jesus, we seek our own glory. 
not his. And the daily fight for us as Christians is to keep ever before us these complementary truths of God, of our supreme unworthiness and God's supreme worthiness. That we will never rightly honor God apart from a clear understanding and submission to the fact that we are supremely unworthy and God is supremely glorious. And I believe that text that we're looking at this morning helps us see that clearer. Remember, this is the book of Ephesians. It was written to a group of Christians in Ephesus and the surrounding area. I believe we're told the purpose behind why Paul is writing this letter in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's writing to Christians, urging them to walk like Christians. Paul's writing to Christians, urging them to live like Christians. Imagine that. That we might actually have to be reminded and urged to live like Christians who have been saved by God. He's urging them to do that. But ultimately, you can't walk in a manner worthy of God unless you've been saved. So Paul spends chapters 1 through 3 talking about what it means to be saved. And then chapters 4 through 6 on how to live like one who is saved. Does that make sense? Paul always lays the groundwork. He doesn't assume anything. He lays it out and then says, now here's how you should live as a result. In chapter 1, we've already looked at the fact that Paul gives us this extensive list of what Christ has purchased for us on the cross. And so what we see in the text this morning, in this section, is that Paul is dealing with what salvation with Christ looks like so that you can walk in a manner worthy of of him. My desire for every single one of us is that we'd walk away with a clear understanding of how unworthy we are before God and how supremely worthy he is of worship. So there are two truths we're going to look at. If you're taking notes, and you should take notes because you won't remember most of what I say, especially with as hot as it is in here, you're going to fall asleep in 30 seconds. So I need you, before you pass out, I need you to get this down on paper, okay? That way when you come to, at the end, You've at least got something to walk away with. Number one, here are the two truths we're looking at. Number one, salvation is not initiated by us. Salvation is not initiated by us. And number two, salvation is initiated by God. Those are the two things. If you're, if you're about to fall asleep, this text tells us that you do not initiate salvation, and God does. And I believe I'm going to show you that in these verses. So let's start with number one. We are unable to initiate salvation, verse one. He tells us in Ephesians chapter two, verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What is Paul telling us first off when it comes to salvation being a gift from God? He's telling us that it's a gift from God because you can't initiate it and don't initiate it. And the reason you can't initiate salvation it's very simple. What does he say in verse 1? You're dead. You're, you're spiritually dead. I've done funerals. I've done lots of them. I have yet to have a dead person get up and start walking around again. You know why? They are unable to bring life back to themselves. 
We are spiritually dead. Listen, I've heard, a, I've heard a, um, an illustration about salvation from another preacher that, that basically was this. He described salvation as us, like imagine you're in the ocean and, 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 and the waves are crashing over the top of you and you're bobbing on the surface of the ocean and you're, you're trying to tread water, right? And then thankfully Jesus shows up and, and, and Jesus throws a life preserver to you and, and you just gotta, you gotta grab on the life preserver and, and you will be saved, you will be rescued, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. You know what I think the Bible teaches? You ain't bobbing on the surface of the ocean. You have been dead at the bottom of the ocean for decades. Your corpse is rotting. You can't grab onto life preservers. You're dead. And see, the biblical picture of salvation is not that we're waiting for Jesus to show up so that we can grab onto something. The biblical picture of salvation is we are dead. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There is no spiritual life in us at all. And what God does is not throw a life preserver for us to grab. What God does is he goes to the bottom of the ocean. He brings our dead bodies back up to the surface and spits us back out on dry land with life. Makes Jonah sound awfully similar. I wonder if God was teaching us from Jonah the picture that we are spiritually dead. So the problem is you can't initiate salvation because you're dead. Spiritually, apart from God, there's no life in you. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Notice he gives us two different, two different words to describe sin. Trespasses, which is a word that means purposely stepping over a boundary. It's when you draw a line in the sand and you step over it knowing it. That's what a trespass is. It's knowingly violating the boundary God has set. Sins is a, is a word that talks more about missing the goal, straying off the path, go astray. That's what sins points to. But what I think he means by these two words is that our sins are many and they are various. We're not in this room guilty and dead in our trespasses because we committed one sin. We're, we're dead because we commit all kinds of sins. Various types, different looks all the time. We are sinful people. And so we can't initiate salvation because we are sinners. And notice he says, in which you once walked. That's an active word. That means you pursued that. You weren't a helpless bystander. I wasn't a helpless bystander. I was actively pursuing sin before God showed up. Salvation can't be initiated by me because I'm spiritually dead. I'm void of any power, any life, any spiritual good. I am what you would call spiritually hopeless. That's the picture Paul paints of life apart from Jesus. We are spiritually dead. Not only that, but he also goes on to say we can't initiate salvation because we are spiritually enslaved. He says you once walked in this way, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power in the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Following the course of this world means you follow after the world system. That which stands in opposition to God, we chase after. We're not neutral towards God. The Bible describes us as actively chasing after and following the way the world says we're to walk. 
And we're active in that. We walk in step with the world. By the way, the world is rebelling against God. So guess what we're found doing apart from God? Rebelling and walking in it every day. Why can't we bring about our own salvation? Because we're busy walking after the world. We're enslaved to sin. Not only that, but Paul goes on to rightly identify who our leader is. Just so you know, you're not following yourself, although you are. But Paul says, ultimately, the one you're following is who? Everybody in the room catch that. The Bible did not say that apart from God, you were neutral towards God. The Bible says, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, that apart from God, you are following in lockstep with Satan. He is the one you're after. Just so you know, that was news to me when I was 17 years old. Because I didn't think I was following after Satan. I just thought I was being a good guy. I made mistakes, but that wasn't a big deal, right? Well, until the word of God shows up and says, yeah, matter of fact, you're not just walking in sin. You're following after Satan. Everybody catch that? The reason why we can't initiate salvation is because we're spiritually dead and we're enslaved to sin. And we're following after the author of sin. Here's the question. Do we see our sin as serious? Because Paul certainly does. There is no neutral position. James 4.4 tells us, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's where we stand with him. Paul goes on to say, we once lived in the passions of our flesh. Guess what? We're found to be slaves to sin in bondage, only desiring our own natural sinful passions. That we carry out the desires of the body and the mind. And by the way, he uses a phrase here that means continuously we chase after these things. Not once. We live full lives chasing after sin. You know why we can't initiate salvation? We're spiritually dead and we're found busy actively chasing after sin. We are so enslaved to it, we don't even know it and see it. We're unable to initiate salvation because we're not looking for God. And rather than finding our joy and allegiance to the creator, we seek our own joy and our passions and our desires. We crave whatever God forbids. <laughs> and by the way, I didn't have to teach my children how to do that. I didn't have to teach my children how to follow after their own desires. I didn't have to teach them how to rebel. They knew very well how to rebel. I mean, they're nice now, but, you know. No one had to teach me how to rebel against my parents. I did it quite well. Well, guess what? That's how we're found. We crave that which is forbidden. We chase after it. We are not neutral towards God. We are enslaved to sin. He tells us this is true of our body and our minds. All of our actions, all of our thoughts are marked by sin. Salvation can't be initiated by us because we are spiritually enslaved. Number three, here's another reason why we can't initiate our own salvation is because we're spiritually condemned. I've used this before. My wife loves Judge Judy because everybody gets what they deserve at the moment. There's no delay, right? You're guilty and Judge Judy gives it to them. Boom, instant justice. We love that. And thus it's us. And what Paul tells us here in Ephesians 2 is that we are spiritually condemned before God. 
He says that because of our sin, we find ourselves rightly under God's wrath. He says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath. Guess what we deserve? Wrath. We deserve the punishment of God for our sin. Like the rest of mankind, every person in sin is under the wrath of God. We deserve nothing but his judgment for our sin. And God is perfectly righteous to punish us for our sin. That is right on his part, that he punish rebellion against him. And this is the same spiritual condemnation shared by every human being who walks the earth. We're rightly under the righteous wrath of God that is due us for our rebellion against him. We cannot initiate salvation because we are spiritually condemned. And we can't pay for that on our own. So here's what I want us to get from this first part. We bring nothing to the table when it comes to salvation. We come empty-handed And we naturally have to understand that by our nature, we look to ourselves for rescue. And God's God's word repeatedly drives home our desperate need for rescue and our inability to save ourselves. Here's the question I want to ask you. Are you making much of you? Am I making much of me? Are we resting in the works of our hands to make us right before God? Or are we resting in him? This first section in Ephesians 2 shows us that we cannot initiate salvation. Number two, salvation is graciously initiated by God. Verse 4, you see that great theological word, but. Right? Which is telling us that everything he just said is about to be contrasted. So as verses 1 through 3 show us that we are spiritually dead, we're spiritually enslaved, we're spiritually condemned, and as such we cannot initiate salvation, he says in verse 4, but. And what he's doing is he's showing us that God is able to do what we can't do. And that is graciously bring salvation to his People. He says, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Salvation is a gift. It is a gracious gift of God because, number one, we can't initiate it. Number two, he does. In contrast to our helpless condition, our supreme unworthiness to be saved, we see God's supreme worthiness as he accomplishes and gives us what we could never get for ourselves. Verses 4 through 7 should overwhelm us with the beauty of who God is. Because you need to underline that phrase, but God. But God, that is the whole thing. If not for those words, every single one of us in this room would still be under the wrath of God. But God. Those are beautiful words because they contrast the ugly picture of our human condition, of our identity apart from him. Apart from God, there is no hope. If there is no but God in verse 4, then we're still stuck in sin and condemnation. Every spiritual blessing we possess is because of him. And just so you know, we need to see verses 1 through 3 before we appreciate verses 4 through 7. Listen, when you go to buy a diamond, right? Okay, when I, when I was going to marry my wife, right? I was, gonna, I was young and dumb and thinking I knew everything and 
When you decide you're going to get engaged, you got to go, guys, what do you got to go do? You got to go buy the ring, right? Because apparently in this world, we are not allowed to get engaged unless I buy you something expensive. So you got to go and you got to buy the ring. And, and when you go to the jewelry store to buy the ring, you, you look at them all in the cases and, you know, which one do you like? Which one do you think looks nice? And you look at them all and you're like overwhelmed. You say, okay, we're not, we're not going down that path because I... I'd have to work for 18 years to get that, so we're not going there. Here's, show us the section. Where's the Harris section? Okay, here's the Harris section down the middle. But when you say, I, when you say, I like that ring, they, you don't just go, okay, I, I like that ring. Let me, let me buy that one. They go through the whole elaborate thing when you buy a ring, an engagement ring, right? What they do is they bring out that, that black, like, cloth, you know, because they got the clear cases, and you don't, don't want to bring a ring out and put it on those because you may not see it. Or, so they bring, they bring the black cloth, and they put it down. It does. And, and then what they do is they take that ring, right, that little piddly thing that looks really small next to those, and they bring it out by itself, and they put it on the black cloth, and then it makes it stand out. Right? Against that black background, it makes the diamond sparkle a little better than what it did when it was sitting in the case. Well, why do they do that? Well, because they need to give something for it to be contrasted against. So they put the black background behind it so you can see better the beauty of the ring. Can I help you? Verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2 is the black cloth. It is the ugly state of sin we find ourselves in. It is the darkness. And what God does is he lays down the black cloth in verses one through three so he can pull the diamond out in verses four through seven and put it on there. And all of a sudden, verses four through seven, they just shine at you because they're so beautiful compared to that ugliness of verses one through three. You with me? Verses one through three, get us ready for verses four through seven. And this is what the prosperity gospel teachers miss. When they refuse to talk about sin, when they refuse to talk about darkness, what they're not doing is they're not laying the backdrop to our sin and the beauty of God's rescue. They're making God's rescue look cheap and not glorious. Because what makes God's rescue so glorious is the fact that we couldn't initiate it on our own. We were ugly, dirty sinners, and yet he saves and on the backdrop of that black cloth, verses four through seven, shoot out. Paul had to do verses one through three so that verses four through seven would look beautiful to you. As a sinner, you would look at verses four through seven and go, why in the world would God ever do that for me? Because in verses four through seven, we see God demonstrate the unmerited love he has for us. We're told here that God was rich in mercy. God doesn't just have mercy. He's rich in it. He, he has abundance of it. And oh, how we need God's mercy to be abundant because our sin is abundant. We deserve wrath, but instead he loves. We deserve punishment, but he gives forgiveness. And mercy and love are who God is. It's not just things he does. It's who he is. God is mercy. God is love. And he acts towards us out of his character. And he says he did this in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Right? You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. It was unmerited. 
His grace and mercy comes to us while we were dead in our trespasses, right? Not bobbing on the surface of the ocean, dead on the floor of the sea and been dead for years. That's when God rescues and his mercy is rich. God demonstrates, according to Romans 5, 8, he demonstrates his love towards us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died. But not only does he demonstrate his unmerited love towards us, he also demonstrates the powerful love towards us because we're told that even when we're dead, he made us alive together with Christ. I want to show you three phrases that are connected here in these verses, and they all begin with the, the attachment of the word with. Number one, he says that he made us alive together with Christ. Number two, he says that he raised us up with him. And number three, that he seated with him in the heavenly places. He has put us with him in the heavenly places. All three of these describe the past event of God showing his grace towards us. We're told that he made us alive together with Christ. That's a powerful God who can take spiritually dead people and bring them back to life. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he wasn't doing that simply to show how powerful he was as a magician. He was doing that to show what he could do with physical life, Jesus can do with spiritual life. He can cause physically dead people to get up and walk around to show that he can make spiritually dead people get up and walk around. That's powerful. God's love is not just unmerited, it is powerful love. That raises us from the dead. I'm told that we were made alive together with Christ. We're made alive not to exist on our own. We're made alive to be with Jesus. And that life was purchased for us at a great cost. Go back and read Ephesians 1. You'll find the great cost paid for us to be raised again. He says, by grace you have been saved. This is a parenthetical note that basically Paul just wants to make sure everyone understands that you're saved. Not because you deserve it, but because of the grace of God. Not only did he make us alive together with Christ, he also raised us up with him, he says. The love of God is powerful not only to bring life in the midst of death, but to bring freedom in the midst of bondage. It's not just enough to give us life and still leave us enslaved to sin. He had the power to not only bring life where there was nothing but death, but he also has the power to bring victory over sin, over the bondage of sin that it has over us. In salvation through Christ, we've been set free from the bondage of sin. God's love is powerful not only to forgive, but to break the stranglehold of sin over us. Oh, how glorious is that? That sin no longer has authority over us. God, God not only brings spiritual life, but in Christ, he also brought us deliverance from all that sin brought. So he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us with Christ. And he seated us with him. All spiritual blessing, our inheritance, our hope that has been secured in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, everything in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, that has been given to us. We have a new heavenly citizenship that has been secured for us in Christ. Our certain hope is not based on what we are able to do, but what Christ has already done. Our great hope of the future is not in what Jason can do. Our great hope for the future is what Christ has already done for us. He has seated us with him. Notice those are past tense words. 
Those are things that have already been purchased. We've been made alive. We've been raised up with Christ. We've been seated with him in the heavenly places. All spiritual blessing is ours because of what Christ has already done. So God demonstrates his unmerited love. He demonstrates his powerful love. And then finally, he demonstrates his immeasurable love. Look at verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian believers. And he's telling them that they are the evidence for everyone who comes after them of the immeasurable, unmerited, unbelievably powerful love of God. The Ephesian believers are evidence of the fact that God acts with supreme mercy towards those who cannot act for themselves. That he saves those completely unable to save themselves. Adrian Rogers once said this. He said that as Christians, we're not only witnesses, we are part of the evidence. When we walk around, we are displaying to a world what God can do for sinfully dead people. Every sinner rescued by God is yet another demonstration of the immeasurable love of God. Because guess what? He never runs dry when it comes to his love. It never runs out. And this is the good news as a Christian that even when I blow it, even when I sin, guess what God says towards me? He says, I still love you. Because his love isn't based on my worthiness. His love is based on his and his glory. Oh, that we would see that it's not by our hands that we rescue ourselves out of the sin and muck and mire, but it's only by the powerful hand of God that just as Isaiah the prophet wrote, God looked down on sinful creation. He said, will no one stand for these people? Will no one stand in the place and pay for their sin? And then God says, I will show them by my strong arm I will rescue them. God says, I'll reach down in my creation and I will scoop up people who cannot save themselves. God says, I'll demonstrate my power as I go into a world stuck in sin and I dig out of it people who are rescued for his glory. When we're saved, it is a miracle. Every person in this room who has been rescued by God God says he is demonstrating his powerful arm as he reaches down into his creation and he scoops out lost, dead sinners who can't do anything for themselves and he shows his immense love. Now, I know y'all thought we were gonna camp on verses eight, nine, and 10, right? Because that's what y'all know. Y'all really know eight, nine, and 10, right? That's the good part. But to be honest with you, I think 8, 9, and 10 are just restatements. 8, 9, and 10 is just Paul restating what he's already said. So for me, the, the real, real meat of it is there in those first seven verses. Then 8 through 10 is a restatement of what that means. He says in verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. He said this already. He's laying it back out again. Just so you know, it's not based on what you do. It's not based on the ability for you to save yourself. It is a gift of God, he says, not a result of work so that no one can boast. He's already said that. He's already said you cannot save yourself. God knows us. If we were able to save ourselves, guess what we'd sit around doing? Boasting to each other. You know what I did to have God save me? 
You know what I did to save myself? But there is no boasting for man. You know why? Our only boast can be in Christ because he alone was the one who was able to purchase our pardon, not our works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. That means masterpiece. Paul ends this section by telling us that as Christians, we are the masterpiece of God. We are the workmanship, his Picasso. That when God saved us, he was giving brush strokes to his masterpiece. And we are his workmanship, and we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Remember what Paul's getting at. In chapter 4, he's going to say, now walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Why? You were unable to save yourself. God saved you by his grace. You are a walking masterpiece to the world of what God can do. Now go walk in the world in a way that shows the beauty of God. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul says for Christians, God's desire for us is that we would walk in the calling which, which he's called us. We wouldn't take that lightly when we would pursue that. And the only way we're going to pursue that is if we truly understand and have a clearer view of the gift of God in salvation. As long as we think it's by our hand, we'll never give God the glory he deserves. We'll never walk in the way he calls us to. But if we would recognize our inability to save ourselves, that we are spiritually dead, spiritually enslaved, spiritually condemned, and if we were able to see clearly God's loving rescue, his unmerited love, his powerful love, his immeasurable love towards helpless sinners, in that when we see clearly our unworthiness and God's supreme worthiness, guess what? God gets glory when that happens. And we begin to walk after him to give him the glory he rightly deserves. Remember, Spurgeon told us that the role of gospel preaching was to lay all men as dead men before the throne of God, seeing that the only way they're going to be rescued is if God were to act and here's the beautiful thing. God has created every person in his image. And as such, every life has value. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how great your sin is, no matter how far you've strayed, every life is valuable to God because he personally, lovingly creates every person. But because of sin, we reflect a flawed image of God. We reflect an image of God that is not true. And it pleased God to bruise Jesus, Isaiah tells us. It pleased God to sacrifice his son to rescue us so that we might rightly reflect his image. And God delights, hear this, hear this. God is not some ogre who just doesn't want to pour out his love and grace. He loves to pour out his grace. God loves to pour out his mercy. God loves to pour out his grace on helpless sinners. It pleased him to bruise his son so much so. So let us glorify God by resting in the finished work of Jesus for us because he alone is able to save. If you're not a Christian, you need to see that the promises of God in our text today, the promise of life in the midst of death, of rescue out of sin, redemption out of slavery, those are only true for those who have placed their trust in Christ's work. You cannot earn this on your own. You cannot achieve this by your own hand. 
If you're in this room trying to earn your way to heaven, I need you to see that Ephesians chapter 2 is abundantly clear. You cannot achieve your own salvation. Christ is the only one who could pay for our sin, and he did so. Trust in his work, not your own. Believe in him and what he did, not what you can do. And as Christians in the room, let us walk in a manner worthy of that calling. That while we didn't deserve it, he died for us and he saved us. I had a gentleman in my church in Indiana who was a preservation officer. And uh, he found himself in a situation of a rescue effort of someone who had fallen near a dam. And he was in threat of being pulled in and perishing. But someone jumped in and saved his life. And he recounted the story of how much he would do for that man because that man had risked it all to save him and to pull him out. If we don't clearly see what God has done for us, if we try to convince ourselves that we kind of deserve salvation a little bit, that we can earn it on our own, guess what? We rob God of the glory he deserves because he didn't just help out. He did all the lifting, and he rescued us. And until we see that, we'll never glorify him the way we should. But once we do, when we see our unworthiness, but his supreme worthiness, what wouldn't we do for him? What wouldn't we give for the one who saves our lives? I believe we'd give everything to him. That is the only rightful response. Paul would go on in Romans chapter 12 to say, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Why is that the pleasing sacrifice? Because chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, Paul lays out that God has done everything to rescue dead people. We'll walk in a manner worthy of our calling when we see that we are unable to save ourselves and God has graciously rescued us. To him be glory forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gracious gift of life that you bring. That, Father, you rescued us not because we deserved it, but supremely because we didn't deserve it. And you show your amazing grace and glory in the rescue of lost sinners. And so, Father, help us to see clearly two things this morning. God, I pray that you will show us clearly that we are unable to save ourselves that there's nothing we can do to earn your forgiveness. God, make it abundantly clear to us that we cannot save ourselves and that there's nothing in us that would warrant you saving us. And God, that's a humbling thing. It's humbling to consider the fact that I can't rescue myself. So God, help me see clearly that I'm not the answer to my, solution, to my problems. And then God, help me see clearly that you do rescue sinners. That what we couldn't do, you do every day in taking lost people who are enslaved to sin, dead in their trespasses, spiritually condemned, and you rescue them simply because you love simply because of your mercy. And so, Father, for 
people in this room who are trying to earn their way to heaven, help them to see, God, that they can't save themselves. They can't do enough good deeds to get them to you. And God, help them to see clearly that you have done everything. Help them to see the cross. Help them to see the beautiful sacrifice of Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection. Displaying your power to mankind. God, help us to celebrate your rescue. Your loving rescue of sinners. Oh God, in this place, as a church, I pray that you will fan in our hearts a burning love for your grace and mercy shown to us, not just in the past, but God, every day. Oh Lord, there is no one else who has died to save us from our sin, only your son. There is no one else who can save us. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one name we are called to call upon. There is only one name that is worthy of honor. There is only one name that is the greatest above all. There is only one name that is supreme over all authorities and rulers and powers. It is the name of your son. It is the name of Christ. So to you alone be glory. As you help us who you've saved walk after you and as you save lost sinners today. Oh God, work in this place that we would love you more. You are great. Oh God, you are supremely beautiful and glorious. Help us never lose sight of our desperate need for you. Lord, that we wouldn't rely on our hands, but we'd bow before your throne and say, save us. Help us. Rescue us for your glory alone. Oh, Father, help us to praise you because you're worthy. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.